as God would have it, we were right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, including the passage that has the Lord's Prayer in it, as we begin our week of prayer. So I thought it was fitting for us to just stop and zero in on the Lord's Prayer as we begin our week of prayer as a church. So if you would, take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 9 through 13. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. If you're using one of these pew Bibles, you can find that on page 811. Page 811. Let's stand as we hear the Lord's word. Jesus said, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated as we pray. Father, through these words, teach us to pray. Amen. I learned to play chess from my mother. Or more precisely, I learned the rules of chess from my mother because when I got to college, I found out I didn't play chess, I pushed wood. But I loved, I loved chess. And I would play it in college with my friends, and we would, uh, we would you know, make our moves. I, I probably lost more than I won, but I would even enjoy talking about it and discussing it. Um, after a game, we'd talk about different strategies. Why did you do this here? If you had just made that move there, did you realize? All that type of thing. Greg Strom never played chess with us. He was just in another league when it came to chess. He was the captain of his chess club at his elite high school and uh, was, had a mind unlike the rest of ours. So, when Greg Strom offered to give me some instruction in chess, I happily agreed. It's one thing to talk about it with us chess plebeians, our commoners, but to actually have a chance to learn from the master was a real treat. And I was going to pay close attention. And I think that's often how it is, or that's how it should be for us with the Lord's Prayer here. You know, there, there's a lot of different ideas about prayer. Most major religions incorporate prayer as some element of it. And even within Christianity, there's just lots of different competing ideas. We like to talk about, well, I try this in prayer, or I do this in prayer. Maybe you talk about it with your friends, or your children, or your spouse. You go to the bookstore and there's tons of books about prayer, offering different advice and sometimes even conflicting advice. I think this plethora of ideas and uh, conversation about prayer is because prayer is an area where we uniquely feel a sense of guilt, confusion, and frustration. So we're always grasping for something. But into all this, the Lord comes, the Master, and He says, pray like this. 
And I think what we need to do is let go of whatever ideas we do have about prayer. Now the Master is teaching us. We're going to learn not not just how to push wood, but how to play chess. Now I'll be working through this prayer line by line, but before I do, I want to make five quick observations about the prayer as a whole that I think are helpful. The first observation is that it uses words. I know it's a brilliant observation. You guys are all impressed at my exegetical skill. But it's actually an important observation that when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he does so using words because there is an increasing um, view out there that describes prayer as some sort of um, mystical communion with God, a, a sense of his being with you. Now, whatever the value of those things are, and I think there is some value in sensing God's mystical presence with you that's not what prayer is anywhere in the bible prayer in the bible is always using words and and if you actually look at religions that are out there the religions that promote wordless prayer are actually tend to be more eastern or pagan religions so prayer uses words the second thing i want to point out is we are to pray Jesus says, pray like this. He's instructing us to pray. I know. My observations are continuing to overwhelm you. How brilliant they are. But I think this is also important to point out. Because, for many of us, prayer is something that we keep at arm's length. Okay, I'll do it once before meals, because that's what Christians are supposed to do. Or I'll say my bedtime prayers with my kids or my grandkids, but prayer is just not a part of who I am or what I do. That's just not my personality. I'm uncomfortable with that. But we are to pray. In fact, I'd say a Christian who prays little is like a boxer who trains little. They're just not going to accomplish much. In fact, it's, it's almost... It, uh, you aren't going to be a boxer if you don't train. That's part of what it means to be a boxer, and so with prayer. Third quick observation, it's a short prayer. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong to pray for a long time. And we have examples of Jesus going away in solitude and praying for a long period of time. We have long prayers in Scripture. Long prayers are not inherently bad, but... Jesus, when he's saying, pray like this, gives a short prayer, and that comes right on the heels of him saying, don't be like the pagans who think they will be heard for their many words. Instead, pray like this, and he gives a short prayer. You see, we can't think that we are going to be able to manipulate God by just praying for a longer time, or that it's more pious to, to heap up words. We have a Father who knows our needs, and we are His children going to Him, and He's eager to give good gifts to His children when they ask. The fourth observation is that as you go through the prayer, the language is our, not I. It's not give me my daily bread. It's give us our daily bread. 
It's not forgive my debts. It's forgive us our debts. Which maybe if you've heard that prayer over and over and over again, or you've grown up hearing the Lord's Prayer, you never even notice because we live in such an individualized society. I know that was the case for me. I would always pray, forgive us our debts, and I was only thinking about me and my. Even though I was using the language I knew of us and our. But this is actually challenging our individualism and saying, when we pray, we pray collectively. There's a reason that when, when I came, I said, one of the things we're going to prioritize is corporate prayer. Second Sunday of every month, we're going to bring the whole church together. That's an expectation for all of us to prioritize Sunday night, the second Sunday, one time a month, gathering for prayer. And it's been one of the most encouraging things for me to see how this church has responded to that. Us and our. But it even informs how we pray privately. That as you pray on your own, you pray with a, a sense of the broader body. And you're, you're interceding as part of the body of Christ for the body of Christ. The last observation is that there's a very decided or clear structure in this prayer. There are six petitions, six requests, taking the last two together, lead us not in temptation and deliver us from evil, which is how it's almost always been understood. There's six petitions, and they divide into three and three. The first three focus on God. How would be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And the second three focus on our own needs. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. It's interesting that within that clear structure, the priority is given to God and his purposes. And only after focusing on that, then do we come with our own needs. So with those observations, those five observations setting the table, I want to work through this prayer kind of line by line. Especially focusing in on the, on the six the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Just making sure we understand them. This will be somewhat quick as well. I want to make sure we understand what's being prayed for in the Lord's Prayer. Of course, it begins with our Father in Heaven. And three weeks ago, when I, when I dealt with the broader passage in which this is a part, I, I, I spent a, a long time, or I spent, I took time to talk about what it means that we approach God as Father, our Heavenly Father. And that relationship changes everything. We don't approach him like a pagan who we're trying, a pagan with his God, trying to manipulate that God to get what we want. We approach him as, as children. We approach him as our Father who loves us. But the first request is, hallowed be your name. Now, when you think of name, especially in biblical context, you should think reputation. We still do this today, you know, he has a very good name in this town. It means he has a good reputation in this town. And that's how they thought of name back then. Your name captured kind of who you were. So when we're talking about his name and we're praying about God's name, we're talking about how God is regarded. What is his reputation amongst men here on earth? And the prayer is that how he would be regarded is as hallowed. What does that mean? It means to be made holy or to be regarded as holy. Other, set apart. Um, Karen has a friend who has a little girl. Um, and uh, this little girl was 
grappling with, uh, with the idea of, of God's holiness. And she was being taught this. And this girl, I guess, likes to invent words to try and capture what she means. And she, after hearing the teaching on God as holy, she referred to God as the onlyest. The onlyest. Which is just a beautiful word to describe the holiness of God. He is, the, he is totally other. He is separate. He's set apart. He's unlike us. He's high above us. Holy, pure, set apart. And this kind of weighty, the onlyest. And we want everyone, not just that little girl, but all to regard God as holy. That his reputation would be for his holiness, his otherness, his righteousness. Regarded in our own hearts that way. Even how we approach worship. Or approach his word. And regarded in the hearts of all man as hallowed, holy. The next request is, your kingdom come. Now, there is a unique sense in which the Bible teaches God is sovereign over everything that happens. There is nothing in this world that is outside of God's sovereignty. But when you hear the word kingdom, it's not talking about God's general sovereignty over all the world. What it's talking about is something very specific. That's why when Jesus comes, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, or he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is it's, it's where all is as it should be. Where hearts, the hearts of man, are, are submitted to God and his ways. It, it's... It's his reign where, where the, the aspects of his kingdom that define his kingdom, righteousness, peace, love, charity, are all evident in everything that's going on. And so the way the Bible talks about this kingdom, it talks about in Christ it, it arrives because of what he did on the cross, conquering sin and then death. And so, by His Spirit, this kingdom can actually break into our own hearts. And our hearts can become submitted to God. So that we start to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These aspects of His kingdom. So it's happening in, in our hearts as we are changed by His Spirit. And there is a, there's a sense when, uh, though it's already here, it's not yet here. Because when, when Christ returns, he will bring his kingdom in all its fullness. It won't be something that's just in our hearts through his spirit. But it will be something that is pervasive as he establishes his kingdom and cuts off his enemies and judges them, throwing them into the lake of eternal fire. And establishes his kingdom eternally, wherein there is only righteousness. Even our own flesh that has kind of this lingering sinful side will, will be done away with. And all that will be in our hearts is love and charity and harmony and peace. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, that's what we're praying for. We're praying that in our own hearts, God would have increasing sway over us. We're praying that in the hearts of others who don't yet know Christ, that they would come and submit to King Jesus. 
And we're praying that Christ would return soon. That His enemies would be judged. And that His good and righteous kingdom would be established eternally. That longing that you hear throughout the Scriptures of Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world is broken and we need You to come and make it right is our prayer. In our cool complacency and our comfort. I think sometimes this isn't a prayer of our hearts. Oh yes, Lord, I want you to come, but let me finish my glass of Guinness first. But we are to pray thy kingdom come. The third petition is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Theologians like to talk about God's will in two different ways. His secret will and his decreed will. Okay, His secret will is the fact that he's in control of everything. He is sovereign over everything. So in a sense, everything that's happening in this world, he is over and in some sense is his will. But his decreed will are the things that he said. These are my intentions. This is what I'm about. This is what I'm calling for. This is how I want you to live. He's revealed that to us. It's decreed. It's said, spoken. And that's his revealed will. So think back to the story of Joseph. Remember his brothers beat him up and put him in a pit and sell him into slavery. And he gets sent off to Egypt and all the different things that happen there. God was actually sovereign over all of that. So in his secret will, he was allowing Joseph to be treated thusly by his brothers and sold into slavery because God was going to take that evil act and use it for good because by bringing Joseph to Egypt, he was going to allow for this time of famine that was coming to actually not destroy the people of Israel. Because Joseph would be in Egypt, he would understand that the famine's coming, he'd be able to make preparations for it, and then he'd be able to bring his family to Egypt and preserve the nation of Israel. So God had good intentions in that. His, in his secret will, he was allowing his brother to be, or Joseph to be sold into slavery. But in his decreed will... His brothers were violating that. Because God has said that is not how you treat your brother. It is wrong to treat family like anyone like that, let alone a brother. But when Joseph does what's right, say, with Potiphar's wife, he is obeying God's decreed will. He's, he's keeping God's decreed will. So do you see the difference then between the secret will and the decreed will? So when we pray, your will be done... On earth as it is in heaven. Well, in both heaven and on earth, God's secret will is being done. There's no discrepancy between that. So this prayer is a prayer that his decreed will would be done. Because in heaven, that's happening universally. But here on earth, it's not. We're praying that the things that God has said are good would be done. The things that he said we ought not do would not be done. It's interesting, this very prayer, your will be done, is verbatim used by Jesus in Matthew 26, right before he goes to the cross. And he's looking at this immense suffering he's going to go through in not only physical suffering, but more profoundly drinking the cup of his father's wrath and being cut off from his father for our sins. 
Okay, he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will be done. His prayer is, your will be done. Exactly as he instructed us to pray. This prayer is a saying, God, whatever it is that I want, whatever it is that's important to me, I surrender to you. And I want more than what I want to be done. I want what you want to be done. There's a sense of father knows best. I trust you. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So those are the first three that focus on God. Then the next three, of course, focus on ourselves and our needs. And the first one is give us this day our daily bread. This is a it's a it's basically saying, God, here's my most basic need and I'm dependent on you even for that. I don't know if you've ever been instructed in the Lord's Prayer. And I I always thought of our, you know, give us this daily our bread. This day, our daily bread is kind of just. Any material need I have, I should bring to the Lord in prayer. But there is an interesting sense where this is just our most basic, basic need. And it's saying even our most basic needs, we are dependent on God for provision. Um, We always, in our family, since I was a kid, pray over the meal and thank God for the food he's given us. And I remember... um, thinking, why are we doing this? Like, there's all sorts of other things that we should be praying for, and why is it at mealtime that we stop and pray? That seems like a weird tradition. The reason I would think that is because food was so plentiful and is so plentiful for me. You know, (laughs) go in the cupboard, there's a bunch of food. Go to the grocery store, there's a bunch of food. But for most of the world, through most of history, our daily bread is a very literal prayer request. What am I going to eat today? Where's the food coming from? But no less for us than for them do we actually depend on God for our most basic needs. Look ahead at just a little bit, a little further in chapter 6 in verses 31 through 33. Jesus, in the same sermon, just after this instruction, says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We're like a child, totally helpless and dependent, looking to our Father, saying, you have to provide this for me. My basic needs you must provide. And that's what we're saying when we say, give us this day our daily bread. Provide us with our most basic needs. Heavenly Father. The next, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors, deals with our most basic spiritual need. Every time that we do something contrary to what God has called us to do, every time we sin, we disobey, it's an act of rebellion against the king. Even if it's not consciously that, that's what it is. As a result, every time we do wrong, we are further and further indebted to God. In the, in the 
deepest spiritual sense, we are debtors. I remember um, at one point uh, I had received a personal loan from somebody. It wasn't an immense amount of money, but it was a fair amount. And uh, I'd set up a payment schedule, and I realized I was not going to be able to make my payments for a time. And there's a certain feeling you have kind of in your heart as you go to that friend and say, can I, can I wait? Can I, can I have a, a reprieve, so to speak, until I, I pay? And that's not even asking for the debt to be forgiven. And the monetary debt I owed that person personally pales in comparison to the spiritual poverty, the debt that I come to the Father with. My most basic spiritual need is for that debt to be forgiven. And so this petition is, forgive us our debts. In 1 John it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So like all the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, this is one that we know as we come to God and pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. He will be gracious and forgive. If you're interested in the, the, the explanation of verse 12, as we also have forgiven our debtors, that follows and is expanded upon in 14 and 15. I covered that three weeks ago, and I'm not going to recover it here, but I encourage you that sermon's online. You can go back and listen to that. The last petition is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's two parts of that petition, two sides of the same coin. But what this is getting at after is that we are asking of God that he would provide a spiritual protection because we are aware that we are susceptible to falling into sin. We are susceptible, if we are a ship, we are susceptible to making shipwreck of our faith against the rocks of worldly passion, of sin, of rebellion, lust, etc. And we are daily and even hourly dependent on God to sustain us so that we will not fall into the perils of spiritual uh, perversion. Do we, do we think that way? Do we think, God, I need you every hour for my spiritual protection? Or do we think, yeah, I've got this. I'm good. I can handle this on my own strength. No, this prayer is, I am susceptible, Lord. And so protect me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. 
So that's the six petitions, just kind of helping us understand them. But Jesus is doing something much more profound here than simply giving us six things we should regularly have on our prayer list. He's showing his disciples the kind of prayer that emerges from a transformed heart. And if, if, if there's one thing that you need to hear today, as you, as you listen to the Sermon on the Lord's Prayer, it's this. Again, so I'll say it one more time. He's showing the disciples the kind of prayer that emerges from a transformed heart. You see, this, this model prayer is framed within the Sermon on the Mount. This long sermon we've been in, in Matthew, where we've seen over and over again Jesus' concern in setting up the ethics for his people is their heart. What are your motives? What's going on inside your heart? Jesus' focus has always been on the heart. And so, here in the Lord's Prayer, he's saying, look, pray this way. But the kind of things he's saying to pray for cannot be prayed genuinely, sincerely, unless our hearts have been transformed. Think about what man, what humans, are most likely to prioritize. So what, what, do we, what do we care about? We care about our name. Our reputation, right? We care about our kingdom, that everything in my life is ordered as I want it to be. We care about our will. I want to get my way. And Jesus says, you know what? The first petition, the first request that should be bursting from your heart is not my little name, my little kingdom, and my little will. But God's name. In God's kingdom. In God's will. Even when you look at the, the, the three petitions that are given about ourself. Do you notice how they prioritize the spiritual? Two out of the three are about our spiritual needs. Think about how we pray for our needs. I, I know there are, this isn't true for all of us. But generally, the things we focus aren't our spiritual needs. I'm sick, I'm without a job, etc., etc. Now, those things are right to pray for, but that you can even pray for those things in a spiritual way with a priority on the spiritual. But when Jesus instructs, he says, even when you pray for yourself, be aware of your spiritual needs, your indebtedness to the Lord, and your dependence on him for spiritual protection. And then even that first, that first prayer request, give us our daily bread, which is physical... It, there's in it a sense of our dependence on God for our basic provision. It's not, give me what I want. It's, this is what I need, God. Give it to me. Think about it like this. Um, our little Mercy is now two. She's, she's two and a half. When, when she was a little baby, she would cry when she had a need. If she was crying... It was because she was hungry, she was tired, or because she had a dirty diaper. Those were the three reasons. Sometimes if there was pain or discomfort, right? Those were the the reasons that she was crying. And so, you know, I wasn't always great at this, but she's crying. I just got to figure out which one of those four it is and meet the need. But as she grew up, now as a two-year-old, When she cries, it's because I gave her milk for dinner and she wanted juice. It's because this book that she 
wants read. She wants read right now, and it doesn't matter that I'm in the middle of something. She's going to cry because she's not getting it. Do you see the difference? We're to cry like that baby to God. God, I have a need that I can't meet myself, and it's genuinely a need, and I'm asking you to meet it. As opposed to, God, this is what I want. Um, I, I want this right now. I don't care what your I, I don't care what your timing is. It needs to happen right now, God. Do you see the difference? Even in that, it's taking our natural self inclination, where we want to take God and make Him in service of us, and turning on its on its turning it on its head. It's saying there must be this heart change in order to pray these things. When when you're asking of God, what are the things that just naturally bubble up and arise and saying, this is what I'm going to plead with God for? What are the things you care most about, you love most? Is it God's name and God's kingdom and God's will? Is it our spiritual health and our spiritual good and realizing our complete dependence on Him? You can't pray this prayer genuinely and earnestly without a changed heart. We had uh, two, in the town I grew up in, there were two high schools, Wheaton North and Wheaton South. And I grew up in the school system that would end up at Wheaton South. And I love the Wheaton Warrnambool South Tigers. From fifth grade on, I went to all the football games, even the away games, cheering with all my heart for them. At church, anybody who was going to grow up to be a Wheaton North Falcons, I chirped them bad, especially all the times we would beat them in sports. And then I graduated eighth grade. Sorry, I graduated grade 8. And my parents decided it would be a good time to move. And you guessed it, we moved from the south side of Wheaton to the north side of Wheaton. I was going to be going to Wheaton North. And I had, I had to make a decision. Because I could go to Wheaton North And I could say, this is my school. And I could go to the games and root for my team. But something had to change in my heart for those things to be genuine. For me to really plead with all that I had. Go Wheaton North! Well, sure enough, I made that change where my heart actually... I I despise Wheaton Wormville South Tigers now. I'm a falcon through and through. I still follow Wheaton North High School. I think it's the same way with this prayer. We can mumble the words. We can memorize them. Oh, Father, in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. We can do that. But in order to really pray these things, in order for this to be the actual overflow of our heart. Heart change has to happen. 
And the Bible talks about how that heart change can happen. It's not something you can just decide to do, like I decided I was going to reap for Wheaton North. It only happens when we encounter, have a genuine encounter with Jesus. And by genuine encounter, I mean this encounter where you, where you come to grips in a powerful way of your own brokenness and sinfulness. And you realize you're making a mess of things. And then you see the goodness of what Christ has provided in the cross and the forgiveness he brings, the paying of the debt that he did on the cross for us. And and restoring us to a relationship with our Father. And then as we turn our back, as we repent of that old way and embrace the new King Jesus, there is actually a transformation that happens within us. So that our very desires change. Our very natures change what we love and what we care about. And then when that happens, out of the overflow of these hearts, can we pray with all earnestness, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. Are we willing to be taught by Jesus how to pray? Are we content to just stand around and push wood in our prayers because that's how so-and-so Christian taught me to do it? I, I, I think it's a tragedy, a travesty. I invented a new word, tragedy. <laughs> I think it's a travesty how many Christians... Pray like pagans. God is in my service. God, this is what I want. Can you get it for me? This would make my life better. Can you help me out? Why haven't you done it yet? Our prayers are dominated by that. And it's a stinging indictment of what's going on in our hearts. Yes, I think some of it's learned. Okay, what are all the prayer requests you ever get? It's always for get somebody better, somebody had a baby, somebody, you know, whatever. That's all the prayer requests you ever get. You don't get somebody saying, pray for me because I'm spiritually susceptible to falling and that God would protect me. Uh, would you pray that God's will, I lost my job and I want God's will to be done in this, that w- what he is intending for this would come about. Could you pray to that end? I'm sick. And I'm praying that it would make me more dependent on God. Could you pray that I'd be more dependent on God through this sickness? That's not how we generally send out prayers. So I know some of this is just learned behavior and it doesn't necessarily indict our hearts. But now, now that we've heard the master teach, we have no excuse. Let's not pray like pagans. Let's pray by people who don't see God in service of self. But our central love, our central care has been replaced. Love of self has been replaced with a love of God and a devotion to his kingdom and his will and his name. We need to see Jesus rightly.
And then comes that heart change. And then come new desires. And then out of the overflow of those new desires, we pray the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray. And that's how Christians should pray, according to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. I'd like to invite the elders forward as we prepare to serve communion. This table that we have before us is a reminder of all the things we were just talking about, the forgiveness that Christ brings, what he did on the cross for us, and the union that we have together. So this is a meal for those who are actively embracing the gospel and applying it to their hearts. So it doesn't mean it's a meal, a meal for perfect people or people who have never sinned. In fact, just the opposite. If you need the gospel, it's because we're sinners, right? But if, at the same time, if you're holding the gospel at arm's length and you're saying, no, it's about me, or no, I don't need this gospel, or I'm not allowing that to penetrate my heart, I'm not embracing that, the Bible actually warns against taking the table in a situation like that. And so I want to pass that warning along to you and encourage you just to let the plate go if that's the case for you. But I think for the bulk of us, this is something that we rejoice to do together. Everybody who's going to take this bread and this cup is saying, the gospel matters to me. It's gripping my heart. And it matters. It's, it's, it's working its way into every area. And it's good. And I'm celebrating its goodness together with these people. That's why we at this church take the cup and the bread together not just individually, but we all do it together because there's a sign that this is something that all of us embrace. So when these are passed out, hold the bread in the cup and then I'll instruct us when to take those things together.